0: You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.
1: This morning, we are continuing through the Gospel of John, and we're in John chapter 7, and we're going to cover the whole chapter. So, um, if you would open your Bibles to John chapter 7, or turn your phones on, whichever. Uh, you prefer. And since we only get one shot at this chapter, uh, I want you to pay particular attention. This is uh, We got 50 some verses and it's impossible to cover the whole thing. So what I would like as I read to pay attention to the dynamic between Jesus and the crowd and what Jesus has to say about uh, himself and God in particular. John chapter 7 after this jesus went about in galilee he would not go about in judea because the jews were seeking to kill him now the feast of booths was at hand so his brothers said to him leave here and go to judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly if you do these things Show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast, I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me, because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying you will seek me and you will not find me and where I am you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom, he, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you, why did you not bring him in? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you also from Galilee? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak. And oh Lord, we pray that this morning we'd come to you with our hearts hungry and we pray that you would feed us. You would feed us on your word and you would teach us about who Jesus is uh, and about who you are, Heavenly Father, and your great mercy, your great patience with us that we might have hope and that we might find strength uh, and encouragement and hope in these days in which we live. So open your word to us. We pray that you would multiply uh, the few fishes and loaves that we have to offer and that you would give us that bread from heaven, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you've ever walked into the middle of a conversation that started before you got there and you're listening, hoping to figure out what is happening, what's going on, but no matter how long you listen, it just seems to get more and more confusing. You know, Perhaps at a, ma- a big family gathering, you know, Thanksgiving, you sit down late for your turkey dinner and the family's already started talking about some topic and you have no idea what they're talking about. Or kids, maybe you've walked in and your parents are having a really what seems important conversation And you're asking questions you're trying to figure out but they seem to ignore you and everything is going over your head and this passage feels a little bit like that there's this big sort of family conversation going on and you're like what on earth if you just look at all of the questions that are flying around you know in verse 11 where's Jesus verse 15 where is this guy get all his learning Verse twenty five, isn't this the guy they want to kill? Or verse twenty six, have the leaders determined that this is the Christ? Or jumping all the way over to thirty six, what does he mean? You will not, you will seek me and not find me. Uh, Forty five, why didn't you bring him in? And Are you led astray too? It just goes on and on and on. There's all these questions that seem to need answers, and this is a big, big moment, uh, both in the life of the Jews and. In Jesus' ministry because here we are at the Feast of Tabernacles, a major feast, and Jesus has just, in chapter 6, fed 5,000 people, and there's tons of controversy and confusion about who Jesus is. He's, he's very popular, but it's also dangerous because, we, as we see at the beginning of the chapter, they want to kill him. So this morning, to kind of address some of these questions, I just want to pick two questions out of the passage which are question one, summarizing verses 27 and 41 and 42, which is when the Messiah comes, no one will know where he comes from, right? Or verses 41 and 42, which say, is the Christ to come from Galilee? So the first question is about where is Jesus from? And then the second question in verse 31, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? And then to kind of, wrap things up and make sense of this whole passage, I want to ask a question that is behind all of these questions, which is, why is it not obvious to the crowd, to the Jewish people, who Jesus is? Why is it so hard for them to get it? So those are our three questions. Where is Jesus from? Will he do more miracles, the Messiah, than Jesus? And why don't people get it? So, question one where does Jesus come from the crowd is really hung up on where Jesus is from and in general that's kind of important you know anytime you meet somebody for the first time you'll ask where they are from and you can learn a lot about somebody knowing what their family with their family background uh, what part of town they come from maybe what their job is uh, what their country is and it can give you some sort of sense for what the person might be like or what they might believe now there's two elements to this question because different folks in the crowd we have got a ton of different people who are wondering about Jesus and they're asking variations on this question so the one question is um, that when the Messiah comes we won't know where he's from and there is some Old Testament background for this in Daniel chapter 7 for example in Daniel 7 the son of man this mysterious son of man kind of comes out of nowhere he flies out and he's given a kingdom by God, but we don't know where he's from. And so one of the things is that the crowd is asking me a question, when the Messiah comes, we won't know where he's from. The implication is, well, we know where Jesus was from. We know he's from Galilee, so hence, he must not be the Messiah. But then another part of the crowd, they're going to ask a sort of trickier question with regards to John. They're going to ask, you know isn't he supposed to come from Bethlehem in verses 41 and 42 he's supposed to come from the house of David. Now what's odd is that John doesn't even really address that question. He will address the first variation that the Messiah we don't know where he comes from but he doesn't say anything about Jesus being from Bethlehem even though we have passages like Micah 5 2 where it says that the Christ will come from Bethlehem which actually Matthew and Luke both make it very clear that Jesus comes from Bethlehem but the crowd thinks that they know Jesus comes from Galilee and in verse 52 for example the religious leaders when they go to shut down Nicodemus they say no prophet comes from Galilee read your Bible buddy but John is the last gospel and he's assuming that his readers have some familiarity with Matthew and with Luke so John doesn't really address the Bethlehem question directly. He assumes the reader can answer that for themselves, whereas the crowd is still in the dark. John actually wants to direct our attention further back than Bethlehem. John starts his gospel with these words, that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. John wants us to know and put it f- straight in our minds as this crowd is asking these questions of where has Jesus come from, John wants us to think he comes from heaven. He comes from heaven. So on one level, these people are right. They know that Jesus comes from Galilee. But actually, ironically, they actually don't know where he comes from. And that is what John is saying. The crowd is asking the right question. We won't know where he comes from. He's, He's this mysterious Daniel 7 person. And John's like, that's actually where Jesus comes from. He's coming from heaven. Jesus says in verse 28, you know where I come from, implying Galilee. But they're amazed at Jesus. They're amazed at his teaching and they wonder where his teaching comes from. And this is tied to where Jesus is actually from. The crowd is like, this guy comes from Galilee, yet where does he get this learning? You know, he's not from Harvard. We know he's not a Harvard grad. And Galilee certainly wouldn't have been the, the most prestigious place for education. Jerusalem would have been where all the smart people were. And then in verses 45 and 46, even the officers who they were going off to arrest Jesus, they come back empty-handed because when they're questioned, like no one ever spoke like this guy. We don't know what to do with him. And this is because not only is Jesus from heaven, but his message Just as he himself is from God, his message is from God and that's why it's blowing people's minds. God gave Jesus his words and Jesus is absolutely committed to this message. In verses 16, verse 16 he says, my teaching is not mine. Verses 28, I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and I have come from him. He sent me. So when you pick up your Bibles and you read your Bibles, especially if you've grown up with the Bible or maybe for, you've been a Christian for a number of years, you can get sort of used to the Bible and just think, oh, it's just the book that I have to read. It's my religious book. But it's easy to forget that the Bible is the words of God. And Jesus himself loves the words of God. Jesus himself wants people to know the words of God and his words are God's words. God gave Jesus the message. And that is why where Jesus is from and why he can speak these mind-blowing words without having the top education of his day because he has been communing with God. And Jesus is committed to God's word even if it is unpopular. And this, Jesus says, actually proves his integrity. He says that where he comes from, God is true. And the person that is committed to the message of the one who sent him, not their own message, is also true so Jesus says not only is he from heaven and John is trying to help us get that but his message is also from heaven and Jesus commitment to that message proves where he's from and he even says though to the crowd in verse verses 33 that he's going to go someplace where they cannot go and this kind of puzzles them and shows that they actually don't know where Jesus is from Or where he is going now question 2 verse 31 when the Messiah comes will he do more miracles than this guy now this is the crowd is trying to get at Jesus identity through his actions through his power his identity based on what he does now the question is already asked with an implied almost answer that this guy is doing tons of signs and tons of miracles and back in chapter 6 of John verses 30 and 31 the crowd asks Jesus you know what sign are you going to do perform so that we can believe in you our fathers ate manna in the wilderness Ex, that's from Exodus you know when Moses feeds all those people that's an incredible sign and Jesus has just fed these folks And so yet they're still asking, what sign are you going to do? Jesus has their attention with feeding the 5,000, but it still kind of seems like not enough. Or jump back to John chapter 5. Last time Jesus was in Jerusalem, so he's in Jerusalem here in chapter 7. He's been in Galilee for chapter 6, but in chapter 5 he was in Jerusalem and he healed a man who was lame for 40 years. It wasn't like, just a little bit of physical therapy, a guy who kind of twisted his ankle and Jesus kind of fixed things up a little bit. The guy had been lame for 40 years. And Jesus' own brothers at the beginning of our chapter, they see Jesus doing all these awesome things. And they're like, hey, if you're going to do really cool stuff, let's go to Jerusalem and show everybody so that everyone can know how great you are. But Jesus is is not going to go with his brothers on that one. But the implied question if you read this whole chapter and if you look at the previous chapters of John is like this guy does a ton of miracles and they're super incredible miracles that Moses didn't do. But Jesus is actually going to press things just a little bit further in this conversation. He doesn't actually do a miracle. He's actually going to say that his actions not only does he, has he done pretty awesome stuff but he is also himself keeping god's word he's living according to god's word and we'll get there in a moment it's going to lead us to our next question so in summary of the first two questions where's jesus from well john wants the readers to know he's he is the son of david implied you've read matthew and mark or matthew and luke and he's actually from heaven second will he do more works than this will will the messiah do more works than jesus and the answer is no No, Jesus has many more things uh, that he's doing than anyone else has ever done. And so this leads us then to our third question, which is, why is it not obvious to the crowd? Why why are they not convinced of who Jesus is? Here's the source of their problem, and Jesus is going to point this out to them. That they are out of step. They're out of touch with God himself. While on the other hand, Jesus is actually in touch. He's in step. He's keeping up with everything that God has said and done. You notice that Jesus' brothers, his own brothers say, show yourself to the world. Do your awesome things. And Jesus says, my time hasn't come. The world, in verse 7, the world can't hate you the way it hates me. And then you see, if you watch the whole passage, the religious leaders, they really want to arrest Jesus and shut him down. Even as our chapter starts out, they want to kill him. But Jesus is committed to the message that God, God of heaven, has given to him. In verse 17, Jesus says that if you do God's will, if you desire to do God's will, you'll actually know who I am. And that's why the crowd doesn't get it. They don't get it because they're not in step with God, even though they actually have their Bibles. And you can see throughout the chapter that they're trying to figure out what the Bible say about the Messiah. And Jesus is saying, you're out of touch with God. You're not understanding because you also don't know me, but I'm in touch with God. And in verse seven, Jesus says that he testifies that the world's actions are evil. Now, pause here for a moment. When it comes to encountering Jesus, lots of people think Jesus is a pretty cool teacher. He's got some awesome things to say. He's all about love, you know, and that sort of thing. And he's just kind of like, you know, just a super awesome religious leader. But anytime anybody comes to Jesus, one of the things, and we've seen this through the Gospel of John, he's going to point out that actually you need me. You need me. You need what I have to offer. And you actually have been against God. The things you're doing are not what God wants. And so Jesus' message continually is going to put that right in our face. So coming to Jesus, really coming to Jesus, is going to touch us in sort of those painful spots. But it's all for a good purpose. Now, one of the things that John is doing to show how out of touch folks are is he's giving us some background information and I want to spend the rest of the time answering this question why doesn't the crowd get it by focusing on the fact that this is all happening during the Feast of Tabernacles. As we're told in the opening verses of chapter 7 during the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths we're told in verse 2 was at hand. Now this was one of the major feasts that the Jews were supposed to celebrate. One of three and they're supposed to go up and it was actually it was a harvest feast so they go up it's right around September October it was a harvest feast and it was a huge big deal a real big celebration and they would all flood into Jerusalem and particularly it was focused on the temple. It was kind of something like uh, folks going down to New York City for new years just a huge huge celebration one of the more uh, exciting enjoyable feasts and it was to remember it was for the people to remember what God had done at the Exodus. now kids you might remember that after God does all the plagues in Egypt and then leads his people through the Red Sea the people wander around in the desert no man's land for for years and it's hard to live in the desert for a long time without important things like food and so this feast was all about God's provision. And I recommend, actually, there's strong connections between Exodus 16 and 17 and our chapter here, John verse 7. And I recommend uh, this week, folks, it's great to read the two and compare. Go back and forth and see what connections you can find. Because John definitely has this in mind, not only because he's, because he's shown us that we're in the Feast of Tabernacles. He pointed that out. But one of the things is, for all the positive, fun elements that this celebration would have had for folks, it actually also highlights one of the problems that Israel has had for centuries. If you go back and read Exodus 16 and 17, one of the key words that comes up again and again is that the people grumbled. They grumbled against Moses. And here in our passage, actually, in verse 12 and verse 32, we get this word the ESV translates it as muttering but actually it's the same word for grumbling that we found in Exodus and it doesn't show up in John anywhere except here at the Feast of Tabernacles and it doesn't show up, uh, up often in the rest of the Bible but it shows up a ton of times in Exodus 16 and 17 because the people didn't think that God would take care of them they're grumbling they want food they want water and here's the thing that's interesting is people want signs from Jesus show us signs and in the Exodus they had seen all of these signs that God had done they saw him rescue them right out of Egypt and yet they thought that God brought them in the desert to kill them We're told they didn't believe and God even asks Moses at one point out of frustration how long will these folks not believe in me the same thing that we see going on here in John chapter seven, and so one of the things that Jesus does is he tells them, "You guys are out of step." He tells his brothers, "I'm not. You, your time is way off. My time is not your time." We even see the religious leaders; they want to kill Jesus. They're angry. Jesus points out, and Jesus, Jesus doesn't really kind of beat around the bush with folks. He tends to go straight at the issues. And he says in verses 21 through 24, he says, you guys are angry because I healed a guy on the Sabbath. But you're willing to go and circumcise someone in order to keep the law of Moses by breaking the Sabbath, so to speak. Why are you so ticked off with me? He kind of sticks it right where they're not getting. They don't understand how God's word works. And so Jesus is true when he says that the world hates him. Because he testifies that their works are evil. And so the people don't know who he is. Not only now, but it's because they haven't really known who God is for their entire history. Are we any different? Where are you today? Are you in step with God? Are you keeping his word? Are you loving his word? You know, when I read the Gospel of John, there's so many points where I read and I think, Jesus... What on earth? Like I would not have done that. I wouldn't have handled that situation quite the way you did. Jesus is constantly throwing curveballs at me, at us when we read his word. And so we get the same feel that this crowd has. They're confused. And some of them are even hostile to Jesus. And one of the questions is, in our own hearts, what is what is our heart attitude towards Jesus? And so when we read this gospel, and we read about how slow and dull-witted the crowd is, it can be discouraging because we ourselves can feel that, that we're also kind of slow to get who Jesus is. But there's also, as we look at the Feast of Tabernacles, there's actually hope because God, the triune God, as he's revealed in this passage, is patient and is going to provide. So the Feast remembered, the Feast of Tabernacles remembered how God sustained Israel For 40 years in the desert. Despite all their unbelief. Despite their unbelief back in the exodus. And despite their continuing unbelief. Even to this point where Jesus has come. His brothers don't get it. The religious leaders don't get it. But God is still going to. In this chapter offer them life. Because God is merciful. And God is patient across centuries. Can you imagine we are so impatient. It doesn't take but a moment to tick us off. But God is patient over time. Lots of time. You know, we might feel like, oh, I put up with so-and-so for about a week at camp or, you know, so-and-so when they came over for a weekend visit or whatever. But God is so patient. He's so patient with his people even when they want to kill him. And so here's Jesus reaching out to these same people. He's got a message from God. God the Father has sent the Son out of love. And Jesus is going to preach boldly even in the face of danger. Jesus is sharing this message. He wants them to hear. He wants them to get it. And actually notice one subtle progression throughout this chapter. In verse 10, we're told that Jesus goes up in secret. He's going up in secret. And then verse 14 Jesus is in the middle of the feast. He's he's in the middle of the temple, the most dangerous place that he could possibly be. And he's preaching publicly. He's preaching publicly and blowing people's minds. And then finally in verse 37, he's not hiding. He's in fact crying out on the last day of the feast when most people are going to be there. Most people can hear him. He's going to cry out for them to listen to God. Now here's one thing that's really striking about the Feast of Tabernacles. Not only would they probably had most of the people from the whole um, Jewish people there but there's also a fest- there's a festival procession in the middle of this feast towards the end where the priests would march from the pool of Siloam and they would march all the way up to the temple highlighting the temple is this kind of central place for the feast. And they would pour water at the altar. There's images of water that got tied up in the Feast of Tabernacles. And Jesus in verse 37 and 38, listen to what Jesus says at the Feast of Tabernacles. He says, he cries out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, rivers of living water jesus is going to offer life offer life he's the fulfillment of the feast of tabernacles this water image and we can see actually he says it's coming out of the old testament in Zechariah 14 and 16 i'm sorry chapter 14 verses 16 and 17 this is what we have and the context is that there's actually interesting enough to our own times following an international plague It says, Zechariah the prophet says, Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths, that is the feast of tabernacles. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain, water on them. And then earlier in Zechariah, still talking in this context of the Feast of Booths, verses 5 through 9. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. And there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. And on that day, living waters will flow from Jerusalem and the Lord will be king over all the earth. He's going to gather the nations, and he's going to provide life through water. And this is very reminiscent. This reminds us of why the people grumbled back in Exodus, because they were thirsty. If they didn't get water, they were going to die, and they thought God was going to kill them. They thought God was a killer God, but actually God gives them water even though they complain against him, though they don't believe in him. Now listen to Isaiah 44, verses 3 and 4. Also, capturing this image of the water i will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground i will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants and they shall spring up among the grass like willows from flowing streams water in the desert god alone can give life in the desert in exodus he gives them water from the rock he gives them manna in the wilderness and Jesus says he's the bread of life in John 6 and in John 4 he tells the woman at the well that he has water living water that she won't need to thirst again the Holy Spirit we're told here Jesus offers God himself he offers himself as the bread and the Holy Spirit is living water and one of the questions for us is are we thirsty are we thirsty for the life that Jesus offers Perhaps you feel cut off from God and perhaps you feel distant or you feel like you've been trying hard at this Christian thing and it's just not making sense. Perhaps you feel not satisfied with God or what he has to offer. Perhaps you feel more like the Israelites in Exodus chapter 16 and 17 where you feel like you're thirsty but God's not answering. Or maybe you want to know who Jesus is but you feel like you just don't get it like the crowd here in John chapter 6. But Jesus does promise that he gives living water if you come to him. And as a church, for those of us at Redeeming Grace, may this be a time where we hunger and thirst for God and actually see him satisfy us. Look, look, he's patient. The Lord can put up with quite a bit. All of our grumblings he can set aside and he wants to satisfy us he wants to satisfy us Jesus is tabernacling he's come to dwell among his people even though it will kill him he's gonna teach them the message of God because he himself is from God he is the Messiah and we see God the Father who sends the son the son keeping faithful to the father in his message giving the spirit so that we might be satisfied so look at how wonderful God is Jesus completely in step with the Father, completely in keeping with all that the Father wants in order that we might have life. I wanna close with this quote from Richard Sibbs on God's mercy. Richard Sibbs was a Puritan pastor from about 300 years ago. Listen to what he says about God. He that seeks us before we sought him, will he refuse us when we seek after him? Let no man therefore despair or even be discouraged if there be in you the height and depth and length and breadth of sin. There is also much more the height and depth and length and breadth of the mercy in God. And though we have played the harlot with many lovers, yet let us return again for his thoughts are not ours and his mercies are the mercies of a reconciled God. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, we thank you that you are so merciful to us and you are so patient with us and that you truly can satisfy us. And I pray that in this season, this season of really strange things, strange times, separation, distance, where we feel distant from each other, that we would not feel distant from you. And I pray you would draw us to yourself as a church, draw us to yourself as a people. And for those who have not yet tasted and seen that Jesus is good, I pray that today they would come to Jesus and they would taste of those living waters. And I pray that we ourselves, O oh Lord God, that we would taste of Jesus. We would know Jesus and we'd be satisfied in Jesus this day as we read your word, as we pray. O oh Lord, come and meet us. Dwell among us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen.
2: Great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart. Own it all and reign supreme, conquer every rebel power. Let no vice nor sin remain that resists your holy. Loved and purchased me, make me yours forevermore. I was blinded by my sin, had no ears to hear your voice, did not know your love within no taste for heaven's joys then your spirit gave me life opened up your word to me through the gospel of your son gave me endless hope It's deep. glorify your name
0: Justin, you can come on in. We'll try to keep whatever social justi- justice, social distance <laughs> Okay. <laughs> that we can. That's a different thing. Yeah. Um, well, maybe it's a social justice thing. But <laughs> let me uh, see if I can center our screen a little bit so that it's easy to
1: see us. Do I need to sit like a little bit more like like that so uh, we don't breathe on each other?
0: Yeah, I think we're okay. Yeah. Well, good job. Thanks for bringing God's okay. word to us today. Yeah. really appreciate that. That was helpful. Um, So we want to ask some questions now I didn't see any online if any pop up uh, Josh if you want to just look on there if something pops up We certainly welcome some questions and it's not too late if you throw them in there Josh is looking at the YouTube channel right now and you could throw it on there And we'll try to grab it, but you'd have to do it right away Um, Just a few things Um, Yeah, I brought my Bible up with me Um, So uh, one thing that I just noticed in the passage was and this is just detailed detail stuff, but um, in verse 8 Jesus says my time is not yet come But your time is always here the Lord the world cannot hate you But it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil and then here's my here's the point you go up to the feast I am NOT going up to the feast for my time has not yet fully come hmm then in verse 10 after his brothers had gone up to the feast he also went up. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so what do we make of that? Is Jesus is Jesus lying? He says, "I'm yeah. not going to the feast. You go." Yeah. And then two verses later, he goes up to the feast. Yeah. What's, uh, what's the deal? Is Jesus a liar or? Yeah. What's going on?
1: It's a it's a really strange. It's one of those. It's a strange passage, uh, and and actually, an opponent of Christianity early in the church actually pointed this out as like a, this is Jesus like sort of either waffling or lacking integrity. And it actually seems that the emphasis in Jesus' answer is not that I'm, you know, no way in never going to this feast, but it has to do with the timing. And one of the things is, is that as we'll see later uh, in John's gospel, that he's going to go up for another feast and he's going to go up and his timing's going to be perfect because everyone's going to want to make him king. And we know that Jesus is avoiding that right now. Um, Even at the end of chapter 6, we're told that he slips away when they want to make him king. And Jesus, it seems actually, it's very likely that if he had gone up at the beginning of the feast, when everyone's marching towards Jerusalem, he would have had some sort of situation like that. But that's not what Jesus is going for right now. He's, he's, got, a, he's got a clear timeline that he's working with, and he's going to avoid doing things the way these guys think he ought to. Um, and so it seems more the emphasis is Jesus is not trying to gather to himself right now uh, a political movement. He's trying to gain people to actually believe in, in him and his actual heavenly mission. So I think that that's what's going on. It's not like I'm not in no way ever going to this feast. But I'm not going on your timeline. And so that's why he delays. And he goes up in secret. He doesn't want to be king. Okay. And you're on right uh, I'm on, yeah. Yeah, okay. I'm on. Okay,
0: <laughs> <laughs> Good. We, you, we don't know up here. Yeah, we're yeah. having a good conversation. I yeah. just want to make sure that we're catching all this. That's yeah. good. Um, I guess two things came to my mind as you were talking yeah. there. Is that one is in John chapter 2. Uh, the wedding at Cana, Mm -hmm. and uh, they run out of wine, Mm -hmm. and Jesus' mom kind of outs him Yeah, yeah. goes, well, my son can address that. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, (laughs) it's funny what he says in verse 4 of chapter 2, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Yeah, yeah. Which is not a way that I would talk to my mom, by the way. That would not go well. Yeah. um, But then he goes ahead and does the miracle. So it's like he is on a timeline, but he's still... Yeah. It's not that he's inconsistent, but, that, yeah. you know, I guess even in God's providence, his wanting to slow the progression of what's about to happen down, yeah, yeah. Um, he still yeah. works kind of within that, which, yeah. is, which is super interesting.
1: Yeah, and they're both family, you know, his family. It seems that he actually honors his mom in one sense. Right, uh, and, right, you know, right. he honors his mother, whereas his brothers, he's a little bit more like, you guys just don't know what's going on, you know. Yeah. Y- you really don't know what's going on. So he teaches them. His mom, he just is like, okay, I'll— yeah. I'm gonna go with this,
0: and it sounds more striking in English than I think he means. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, your mom, woman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Usually
1: doesn't go well, but obviously yeah. in
0: in the Greek times yeah. are that or uh, yeah, in, in the Greek here it would have been. This was not quite as disrespectful as it looks for us. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then the other thing I thought of is that, um, y- you know, today in the in the Christian week, this is Palm Sunday. Yeah, which is when his time comes. yeah. So yeah. you think there's a connection there that. This is not my time, meaning this is not my time to, to make my public mess- messianic entrance into yeah. the temple. Yeah. And then obviously set in motion what's going to lead to his death. Yeah. I think there's a connection there, maybe.
1: Yeah. I, th- I think that this is clearly, this is sort of, he, the, the passage is gearing us up for when he will do that. Because um, you know that he will, Jesus keeps his word. He will, he will, when his time comes, he'll do what he needs to do. Um, but it's, it's already, John is signaling to us that there's kind of like this ominous danger that Jesus is facing any time he goes to Jerusalem, which so uh, ironically, you're expecting that when his time comes, you would think he's gonna be the king, but he's actually going to be killed. So there's this, there's this constant play in John of this kind of ironic what actually happens or what is happening. Um, he's playing off on what people know or don't know. So I think that yeah, there's a foreshadowing of Palm Sunday here, but it's it's not super positive in one sense, and yet hopeful, oddly,
0: right? So he will at some point enter into Jerusalem like that. Yeah, exactly. But here it says he enters privately, quietly, and exactly, publicly, and then obviously, yeah. as you as you showed, it escalates. Yeah, like he's teaching, and then all of a sudden he's crying out. So, um, yeah. But in terms of his messianic entrance into into the, well, and you know, we'll get to this a little bit later. But when he does enter Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he then immediately the next day goes and cleanses the temple, yeah, yeah, which is not what people expected the yeah. Messiah. They expected him to come and kind of give affirmation for the yeah, faithfulness, yeah. and he's going to, yeah, he's going to kind of take what's there and make it, make
1: it yeah. great, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Um, when actually he's like, I'm coming to critique this, yeah. And I'm the temple, yeah. not this place. Yeah,
1: so. there, there's all, and one of the things that's actually striking about this passage in relation to Exodus as well, this whole timing thing, his brother's timing's off, but then he goes after the religious leaders for being mad at him for healing on a Sabbath. If you read Exodus 16 and 17, the people, when they go out to collect manna, they go out on the Sabbath, and there's this whole Sabbath controversy showing that the people still don't get God, they don't understand God's timing, and here in the pa- this passage, they still don't get God's timing. Like, in every way, they're off on God's message, God's timing, God's character. And so it's really, there's this kind of thorough disconnect between God and his people that Jesus is trying to address mm-hmm. and will address.
0: Yeah. yeah, well, and I mean, their questioning kind of shows that he is giving all the, he is checking all the boxes messianically. Yeah. Could anyone do more signs than this guy? And the yeah. answer implied is no like,
1: yeah yeah could
0: we expect more of the messiah than this guy no i mean he is checking all the boxes but he's not playing by the rules as they see it yeah and yeah so they're showing that they actually um are more interested in, really in self-justification yeah in seeking their own glory which he says in there yeah yeah um, then they are about the glory of god which is why they're out of step yeah yeah even, even yes, the yes. good deeds they do or the good comes with wrong motivations. yeah yeah. You know, and so he's calling that out. It's yeah. Super Yeah, that's good.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, so in verse 50, we see Nicodemus pop up. You didn't know oh, yeah. the message at all, but yeah. we met Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Yeah. And they have this intera- interesting interaction. He comes to Jesus quietly at night. It's hard to know exactly uh, how genuine Nicodemus is. Yeah. He's maybe genuinely seeking, but he's also coming at night, um, and uh, Jesus is, is not easy on him. hmm <laughs> Is pretty direct that he must be born again, and um, so um, we also see in John chapter three that he is uh, a leader. He's a yeah. he's a he's a very respected, prominent leader within Judaism. So, so tell us a little bit about that. I yeah, I don't
1: know. If it's it's interesting. I've I've often wondered what because Nicodemus shows up at least three times in John's gospel, and so this is number two out of three, as you pointed out, and I've often wondered. Does, does Nicodemus come to believe in Jesus and I, I go back and forth on that what I think is striking in this passage is that he actually seems to be sort of on the same trajectory he comes to Jesus in secret in John 3 but here in the middle of controversy he's willing to start sticking his neck out a little bit he makes a sort of public just as Jesus is going public Nicodemus is starting to go public and try to actually stand up for Jesus so I think it's actually sort of one of these, it's a hopeful sign. While most of the leaders want to kill Jesus, there's hope that Jesus' message is actually being effective. Not only because we see in this passage, I can't remember what verse, but some of the crowd does believe. But Nicodemus seems to be moving in that belief direction. So I think that Nicodemus is a sign of the effectiveness of Jesus um, and that there's hope that actually, yeah, there, there is hope for belief because he was talking to Nicodemus about believing. And now he's crying out. If you believe, you'll have the spirit. So I think it's hopeful.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it's not totally clear. But yeah, he is sticking up for Jesus, which would not be a popular position. Mm-hmm. And then he shows up a third time in John towards the end. And I think it's after Jesus's death yeah. that he goes and brings spices and that kind of stuff. which yeah. is really not a good time. Yeah, to be yeah. Identifying with your, yourself with Jesus, especially yeah. when as the Jewish establishment, you were you were the major. Um, proponents of getting him killed yeah, in yeah. the first place. So I do think that there's, it's optimistic that, yeah. that there's, you know, and, and the Apostle John in his letter seems to, to, to have these cameos of Nicodemus yeah. maybe to show that while on the whole people aren't getting it, there is some, their eyes are being opened maybe gradually. Yeah. And in Acts it talks about, you know, after the Spirit comes in Pentecost, many of the priests yeah. come to faith in Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. So while there's always this tension between the Jewish establishment and the Christian movement, the movement of the gospel, there is a sense in which the gospel is pillaging, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and reclaiming some of these, and maybe Nicodemus is one of them. Yeah, so yeah, absolutely. Oh, one more thing, I just wanted to draw out. And uh, is there any? There's one. Okay, well, let's do that one. And.
2: Interpret this in the context
0: of election. He was curious how you interpret anyone. Oh, thanks, Eric. <laughs> Everything was going so nicely, and then you had to ask a, a challenging question. That's great. <laughs> uh, John 7, verse 37, uh, says, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of him will flow rivers of living water. And his, the question was, because I'm not sure everybody could hear you. Probably yeah, not. yeah. Uh, the question was, how does that relate then to election? Mm-hmm. Uh, what are we to make of that verse in light of God's saving and sovereignty and mm-hmm. all
1: that? Yeah. Well, I mean, you you could answer this probably better than I could, but I think that um, first off, I th- there's always this dynamic between our responsibility and God's uh, sovereignty that is throughout Scripture is always kind of somewhat challenging to understand. You know we want to be able to draw a line like this is where our part takes over this is where God's power stops or whatever the case may be you know we want to be able to um, we don't know what that dynamic is um, at least like we can't we can't articulate exactly how uh, th- that works but I think that the there is a true free offer of the gospel to anyone like Christ will never draw, drive away anyone that truly comes to him Um, so there is a true free offer of the gospel Um, from John though we also know what's odd about this whole passage is that they're having so much trouble understanding God because they don't know Jesus and there's this dynamic where they can't get Jesus because they can't get the Bible they can't get the Bible because they can't get Jesus and they can't get to the Father without Jesus and so Jesus says earlier in John 6 that to come to him the Father has to do a work and so one I would say one thing is John is very clear that God as a triune God is working for the salvation for salvation for people and it's very clear I would say that yes Jesus offers freely the gospel to anyone but it's also clear that it's the work of the father to bring people to Christ and to by bringing people to Christ they will come to the father so there is this I think John actually sets up quite an obstacle that these people have a dilemma that they simply cannot overcome without God doing something incredible in their lives. So that's where I think uh, behind that I think sits uh, some understanding of election. Though John himself um, doesn't talk about election from eternity he, but he does talk about Christ knowing his sheep and we'll get to that uh, and they'll hear his voice and these sorts of things. But that said there is a true free offer of the gospel to anyone and so people that believe in election and say well we'll just let people come you know God's gonna do the work we don't need to preach the gospel have misunderstood that God actually wants people to preach and I think Jesus demonstrates that here he's he's freely offering the living water if you would just come to him but we also know from reading John that other things have to be also at work
0: yeah definitely that's that's helpful uh, throughout the book of John, the sovereignty of God is is all through it, you mm-hmm. know, because it says, um, I'm going to knock the TV over, but, um, it, you know, even go back to John 3 with Nicodemus, yeah. you know, um, talking about it's the Holy Spirit who gives the new birth. Yeah. The Spirit comes when it wants. You know, yeah. it's not like you can't arrange your, you can't schedule your conversion. You can't go, I'm going to go ahead and be converted next Monday. Yeah. Um, because it's when the Spirit brings conviction and when he... Uh, when he does that and then in John chapter 6, which has got about as much election and sovereignty as maybe any passage in Scripture because um, Jesus as he's speaking to the crowd says all that the Father gives me will come to me yeah, you can't come to me unless the Father draws you and uh, The flesh is no help at all mm-hmm. the Spirit gives life And so John 6 I think is the is the context then to go into John 7 that Jesus yeah. is going to reaffirm and, um, and so I think getting then to the point is in verse 37, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, um, is a free offer of the gospel. But we won't recognize our thirst or that Jesus is the satisfaction for that thirst apart from God doing that mm-hmm. work in us. Mm-hmm. He has to create the thirst mm-hmm. and he has to create the recognition that Jesus is the thirst. So mm-hmm. we are called to come to him. We are called to drink. We're called to believe. There is a, an appeal to all of humanity to respond rightly Mm -hmm. to Jesus, but we know that anyone that does can't take credit for that. Yeah. You know, what's the difference between someone who does believe and doesn't believe? Is there something intrinsically better in the one that believes than the one that doesn't? Well, then we would boast if there was something in us that we were able to recognize that we were able to do that. Then in some sense, even if it was a minute level, we would get some, we would have, God would have to share some glory with us. Mm Mm-hmm but there's a total humility in the sense that the only reason I ever came to God was because he drew me. Mm -hmm. He helped me recognize my thirst. He opened my eyes to Jesus. Then he gets all the glory. Yeah. Now I'm called to respond, but the, the fuel for that response is, is anchored not in what I've done or any merit in me, but in merit in God and the kindness of God and the drawing of God. Yeah. Well, so that gives a lot of hope because no one, is too far for the gospel.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And at any instant, the spirit may b- may give yeah, life. Yeah. So that's the hope of it. That's yeah. That's that's really when the Bible talks about election is to give confidence. Yeah. That, um, that God could do a work in an instant. So preach yeah. the gospel boldly. Yeah. And don't test the soil before you scatter the seed. Just yeah. scatter the seed. Yeah. And God could save in an instant. Yeah. The Apostle Paul is an example of that. Yeah. Several examples in Scripture, and so yeah, uh, it's meant to give confidence and hope. Um, And then uh, I just love that verse if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink Whoever believes in me as the scripture has said out of his heart will flow rivers of living water Yeah, so salvation comes from without in the sense that we must come to Jesus Mm -hmm. We live in an age where it's like find yourself, Mm -hmm. you know be true to yourself Mm -hmm. And it's like well, that's the wrong way to go because I my heart is dry and parched and there is no life in me So if I just go deeper into me I'm going to be more and more hopeless all the time because uh, there's no salvation within me. Yeah. But when I come to Jesus, His Spirit is then put within me, and life then t- comes from within. Yeah, because of Jesus and the Spirit. So, um, you know that that be true to yourself. That look to yourself is only half right. You have to have the Holy Spirit, and then from within He brings rivers of living water. If yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. That might be yeah. kind of confusing, but um, uh, so I love that. I love that. That. Um, we don't have to go to a temple. We don't have to go to some place. We go to Jesus, and then Jesus actually enters in to us by the Spirit, mm-hmm. and then from within fuels us. Yeah, so yeah, awesome. Well, the Q and A is uh, was robust. You and I have no problem filling a lot of time <laughs> talking. Um, one last thing, though, I, ca- I just can't get away wi- wi- with this. Um, Would you just maybe highlight a couple things that, you know, you talked about the Exodus 15, 16, 17 connection Uh and the grumbling in the wilderness. And so Jesus is portrayed in the gospel of John as the new and better Moses in many ways. Mm -hmm. You know, we've seen him feed the 5,000. We've seen him lead his people through water. You know, there's these these allusions to the Old Testament Um, um, and there being a new Exodus through Jesus. Um, Is there anything else you would want to say there that you didn't say in the message or? You know putting I, you on the spot
1: yeah that's a great that's a great question um of course there's there's all sorts of parallels um and I'm certain that I haven't hit on all of them, but I think that seeing particularly the unbelief of the people in relation to seeing signs, the signs of God is huge because Jesus is doing these signs, and yet they're still kind of like, okay, we're not so sure we saw it that was pretty amazing, but you know, is that what he's actually is he actually the Messiah, just like the people of Israel, when they brought, they just see the plagues, they're brought through the Red Sea and they're like, he's he's done this to kill us. You know, the absolute unbelief. Um, The one flip there is that they thought God was going to kill them in the Exodus. And if Jesus is the real Messiah, you'd expect him to kind of go after his enemies, which is what generally political leaders would do. But instead, Jesus is going to allow them to kill him. So there's there's a great reversal from the situation in Exodus to what Jesus is doing now that I think is significant, um, and then I, I think aside from that I didn't get into the whole Sabbath thing, but that I haven't really actually processed that one entirely. Why there's this Sabbath debate in seven, and also a Sabbath issue at the um, when they're wandering in the desert uh, that parallel really significantly, um, but I don't have any like. Other than that, those are kind of my broad parallels.
0: That That's that's pretty interesting that they should be judged for their grumbling and yeah. put to death. And God is patient. Yeah. But then they're grumbling ag- ag- essentially against God yeah. and his provision and his appearing and his leadership in Jesus. Yeah. But he's going to take the judgment for their yeah. grumbling, yeah. which is why on the cross he can say, Father, forgive them. Yeah. They know not what they do. They're just like the people in the desert who yeah. you're patient with. Yeah. Um, and now in that sense, yeah. you know, he is going to bear the penalty for their sin against him. Yeah. Um, which is one of the glorious truths of the gospel. Yeah. Okay, great. We've uh, closed each of our services and uh, with uh, just a little bit of an interview. So maybe we can keep this relatively brief. But sure. But I want to introduce people to you. So um, what I've asked, we've interviewed Jordan uh, two weeks ago and Josh and now Justin. Only people named Jay uh-huh. can be uh, interviewed. Okay. So... You qualify. Oh, good. Um, tell me, uh, just tell us briefly about your upbringing, how you came to trust in Jesus. Yeah.
1: Well, I guess a general statement is that I've learned to trust Jesus all of my life, and but to to make it brief and more concrete, um, I I grew up in a Christian home. I had wonderful, godly Christian parents who were very eager to serve jesus Um, they've served sort of essentially as volunteer youth leaders um, in the church that i grew up in the first kind of 10 years of my life Uh, very much kind of people of faith in that they they wanted to know god's word but they were also ready and willing to to act it out to live it out and so i got to see that and i can remember i mean at a really early age i think we had just moved into this house my parents were painting this one room i can remember rather vividly which is sort of strange and I don't know what prompted it but I was just standing in the middle of the room as my parents are painting and I was about four or five years old and I said you know mom dad I think I want to invite Jesus into my heart and they were kind of like oh that's great so they stopped painting you know and we've got like all the furnitures moved all over the place and drop cloths everywhere and you know I prayed and I would say that you know for all I know that might have been that might have been definitively when I actually really embraced Jesus. Um, I wasn't baptized for another several years, though. Um, and I would say, actually, f- from that time, I I had lots of questions about the Bible. I felt like the questions weren't getting answered at the church we were attending. And I also wasn't really particular. I would say I still had lots of things in my heart that I just I, I wanted to like kind of I can remember actually distinctly at one point a missionary came to church and I remember praying, "Oh Lord God, don't let us become missionaries because I don't want to like lose all of my American comforts." Was I? I mean, it was very, it was unbelievably blatant how clear it was in my, you know, elementary school mind. And then we actually switched churches. My parents were kind of hungering for deeper teaching, and we switched churches. And at that church, uh, the pastor was just out of seminary and he would preach like some of the longest sermons I had ever encountered as a kid. Like, and I I joke not, anywhere from 45 minutes to two hours. And as a kid, I just remember like a a middle school boy thinking like, just poke my eyes out. Like, this is awful. Um, And then at some point, something kind of clicked and I just like became fascinated because suddenly those questions that I had as a kid were making sense. And I actually saw as my understanding of God's word grew and who God was, that in my own life, I actually started changing more. So I, my life started reflecting more and more God's word. And I, the other thing I remember at that age was being struck by some Christians who were, they were really like, they weren't tied down to their money, their possessions, and they seemed to have more joy than I had. And I remember that was kind of sort of started loosening that grip on, I want my comforts, I want my American comforts. And so that was really helpful for me. And I think that that started sort of another period of significant growth uh, in the Lord.
0: Okay. I don't remember my microphone. Uh, so you're married mm-hmm. to Melody. She's mm-hmm. right over here behind the camera. Can't yeah. see her, but tell us a little bit about how you guys met and how long you've been married.
1: Okay. Well, we've been married for almost two years. It'll be two years in July. And, um, we met cause I was, uh, essentially sort of interning, working as a pastoral assistant at, uh, a church where she and her family were attending and um and she never talked to me she will deny it vehemently she felt like she talked to me way too much but I felt like she never talked to me and uh we've we I started she was hosting a theology discussion group at her house for a bunch of college students and being sort of you know a part of the pastoral staff I thought I should go check it out make sure it wasn't like heresy and uh was it? Uh, no, was it, it, no. It was, it, was, it was not her. Okay. It was. It was mostly. It was mostly good. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, and so, so that's sort of where we got to know each other. And actually, I I hung out with her, uh, her brother-in-law quite a bit. We would play basketball together and talk. And actually, part of part of my getting to know her brother-in-law Brett was I was going through a really really hard time. Actually, I was seriously depressed, um, and I was seriously depressed because I was in pastoral ministry, but I had been struggling with pornography. Uh, And and for several years, even while I was in seminary, it was, and it had been kind of, sort of unbeknownst to me, eating away at my soul, and I got to the point where I was suddenly like, am I actually a Christian? Am I like one of these fakes? Um, Because, you know, there's so many pastors who fall into sin and ruin the reputation of Jesus and destroy people's faith, and I thought that I was like one of these people. So I I was really struggling, Um, and actually... um, it was through getting to know Brett, and then Melody and I started dating after I spent several months just kind of praying because I was like, "I, I, I things need to change in me." Um, but Melody and I kind of walked through that together. I would, I confessed, you know, the things I had, you know, the ways I had sinned, and um, and we worked and prayed. And I mean, the Lord brought me freedom, which was uh, a great blessing. Um And slowly, kind of assurance and comfort in the Lord has grown, but. Um, we kind of met in sort of a rough and and we're dating in sort of a rough period which kind of our relationship was a little bit up and down but the Lord really brought us through and um marriage has definitely been uh better than dating. Uh f- we would definitely say that. So um so, so you're pro marriage. I'm pro marriage. I'm pro marriage. And, and actually
0: Melody, you Okay, Melody sums thumbs up too. Hey, that's yeah.
1: good. Melody's been a great help. If, if this sermon was remotely clear, it was partially because Melody was like helping me uh, out. So she's been a huge help for me in my own walk with the Lord. And I would say going back almost to question one about how do I come to know the Lord, that season of hardship actually really made me reevaluate. Do I trust God and really rethink the whole, what does that look like? And Melody was hugely helpful for me in growing and trusting the Lord.
0: Yeah, praise God. Thank you for that. Uh, last question, and then we will wrap up with our benediction. Uh, tell me about what you do for a living and what are your aspirations for service in God's kingdom?
1: Okay. What I do for a living, I teach at John Witherspoon College. I teach in Christian Studies. So I get to teach all sorts of fun stuff like history and biblical Greek and uh, some theology classes. Um, and as far as like a sense of calling, I've always, I uh, starting, uh, I don't know, middle s- high school college a lot of folks said you know hey when you talk things usually make sense um, and so like teaching was something I always enjoyed so I've always wanted to kind of either pursue sort of pastoral ministry teaching um, and or like kind of teaching in a seminary setting and one of the things I, I heard a pastor come and s- preach at the church when I was in seminary who was at a, um, a seminary in Uganda And as I heard him talk about what they were doing there, I was like, that sounds amazing. The thought of teaching at a seminary like that, where they're equipping pastors who need to be equipped and who are coming from hundreds of miles just for some some basic biblical training uh, is something that, you know, kind of prayerfully open to what the Lord has. Um, I don't have any clear sense of this is where I need to go, but those are kind of what the Lord has put in front of me.
0: That's good. That's good. Yeah. And you're pursuing your Ph.D.? You yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. yeah. Cool. But I don't do that for a living.
1: Well, <laughs> uh, it probably feels like it.
0: So, um, before we do our benediction, I want to have Josh come up for just a moment. So thank you, Justin. I will uh, Yeah. Thank uh, you. bring Josh up right here for just a moment. Uh, things came together pretty quickly, but uh, actually Josh is going to be moving this afternoon. Um, and so Josh's intention, he and his wife Christine, Christine's not here this morning, but... Um, they, uh, Your intention is to move to Kansas City, and uh, you don't have a microphone, so I'm just going to talk for you, but uh, to move to Kansas City and to, uh, to do seminary training there in the hopes of going to the mission field. Um, and so they're going to start that process now, go spend some time with Christine's family in Nebraska as kind of a... you know a a transition step towards kansas city so things came together quickly and i just wanted to pray with them i know uh, our live stream is going a a little bit longer than it usually does this morning but i just want to say thank you for your service to our church thanks for leading us in worship all these weeks and for being a part of kicking things off we'll miss you but we are super excited about you and christine and where the transition that god has you in right now and uh, the calling that he has on your life to try to take the gospel to places that um Where the gospel is uh, not, um, there's not churches and there's not gospel witness in those places. So we'll we'll just pray for that. So let me pray for you and uh, just kind of send you off with a prayer, and then we'll have our benediction. God, I thank you for Josh. I thank you for He and Christine for the way that you have worked in their lives, for bringing them to yourself through Jesus, and then calling them, bringing them together, calling them, and how you are going to equip them through seminary at Midwestern in Kansas City. God, we pray for this time that they're with their family in these uh, in these next days, weeks, months, uh, however long uh, they're there. We pray that that would be a sweet time. And as they prepare their hearts for for rigorous training in gospel ministry, Lord, we pray that you'd be doing a work in them. And we pray, God, that they would bear bear much fruit, that they would be witnesses of you um, in hard places, in places where there aren't many Christians. And uh, we thank you that, that they're willing to lay aside uh, the american dream they're willing to lay aside their comforts in order to see people come to know you and god we want to learn from that we want to support that and we're thankful for that uh, lord we uh, just pray a blessing on them as they go in jesus name amen thanks brother really appreciate you and love you very much uh, so uh, as we close today don't forget to go to redeeminggrace.info uh, we would love for you to click on uh, some of the links there. Check out what's going on. Uh, leave us some information, or prayer request. We want to follow up with you in that way. And then uh, uh, here's our benediction. It comes straight from John 7, 37 and 38. We pray that this is true of you, um, that if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I pray that that's true. I pray that you'll come to Jesus in saving faith and uh, and receive the life-giving spirit of God Um, and it will be like rivers of water flowing out of you and flowing to others uh, this life that comes through Jesus uh, in the gospel so God bless you thanks for being with us today and we'll see you next week thank you for listening to the redeeming grace church podcast for more information about our church go to rgcrc.org